0: It was a question designed to trap Jesus. It was offered with all that hissing insincerity of an enemy masquerading as a friend. Teacher asked one of Christ's opponents, we know that you teach and speak what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God. So, tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? The question was akin to the, have you stopped beating your wife kind? It was one of those questions which either way you answered it, you would find yourself in trouble. The Jewish people hated the emperor and his burdensome taxes. So if Jesus answered, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, he would set himself up to being attacked by the people as a collaborator, as a tool of the Roman oppressors from which most believed it was the job of the true Messiah to liberate them. If, on the other hand, Jesus were to say, no, 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 that's that's not what you should do. It's not part of God's law to pay such homage to Caesar. Then Jesus would immediately throw himself open to accusations of being an insurrectionist. He would give his enemies the ground that they sought, as verse 20 makes clear, to hand him over to the Roman governor. They were looking for an opportunity to turn Jesus over to the Roman powers and to the grisly judgment that was always rendered upon those who challenged the authority of Caesar. Christ's foes and his friends alike, I'm sure, waited breathlessly for Christ's response. How was he going to get himself out of this one? They would have thought. And then Jesus spoke up. Show me a denarius, he said. And I picture someone in the crowd fumbling his way uh, through the money purse or pockets and then handing Jesus a coin. And on one side of the denarius, the largest uh, coin in the realm, on one side of it was the image of the emperor himself circled by an inscription which read, and I quote, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. I imagine Jesus holding up the coin. Whose portrait and inscription are on it, he asked. Why, Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, then give back to Caesar. what is Caesar's? And then I'm guessing Jesus flipped the coin over, exposing the side which bore the image of the emperor's mother along with the words, highest priest. It expressed the Roman belief that Caesar was worthy of worship. And I picture Jesus saying, concluding the conversation with steely voice, and be sure to give to God. What is God's alone? It was a remarkable answer, really, not simply because it displayed the genius of Jesus in getting himself out of a jam, but even more so because of what these words still have to say about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the empires of man. We wonder ourselves about this relationship, or ought to, I think. We struggle sometimes to sort out the relationship between piety and politics, maybe especially around days like this one, Independence Day, or around election times, maybe especially when moral decline seems evident in the world around us or when earthly courts or congresses appear to be struggling to uh, find the ethical judgment or the coherence or the persuasive power to advance what seems to us to be the highest kind of goods, we wonder, what's the right relationship between spirituality and statecraft, between personal faith and public life, between God and Caesar, or as I've entitled today's message, between the cross and the crown. Well, on this Nation Under God Sunday, I want to try to offer some perspective on these things. I I can't tie it up neatly in a bow for you. I just want to give you some thoughts to hold, uh, some tensions perhaps to manage as together we try to discern what it means for us to be faithful ambassadors of Jesus in our time. And I think to get to an answer to the relationship between cross and crown, we need to ask an even more primary question first, and that is how are Christians meant to view government in the first place? Well, if you take the scriptures seriously, you will know that first and foremost, Christians are called to view the institution of human government as a gift of God. Depending on your political preference or who is in office at any given time, a statement like that may be harder to buy into. It may seem naive at times to look at the government as a gift of God. We've been living through such a time of profound controversy when it comes to earthly administrations. It has become all of the rage to mock and to mistrust those in politics. It's very, very tempting to give in to the cynicism that is all around us today. But God's word says we must not do that as Christians. We are not to be like the us. We are to be renewed by the are transformed by the renewing of our mind and not conformed to the pattern of this world. Christians are called to view government, even imperfect governments, and they're all imperfect, like our families are all imperfect and our churches are all imperfect and humanity is fallen. We are nonetheless called in the scriptures to regard government as a God ordained blessing. It's an institution intended to create the practical conditions where human beings can be free to worship God and choose his way or as Jesus demonstrated so many times can be free to choose another way. As Jesus watched so many people choose to walk away from his way. Chuck Colson once wrote, when God established ancient Israel as a nation, it is noteworthy that his first order of business was the propagation of law, of government, not just for religious purposes, but for the ordering of civil life. Thus, the book of Exodus, Colson points out, teaches that even before the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses took his seat as a judge for the people. The first thing Moses did, even before he went up on the mountain to to, to bring down the law of God, was to enter into the civic governance of his people, suggesting that in the mind of God, civil government is a gift. Journalist Brooks Alexander suggests that the state was one of God's most important temporary measures invoked to deal with the emergency condition of sin. Government would not have been necessary had sin not entered into the picture, but it's one of the ways now God is working To deal with the consequences, the emergency condition of sin, following the fall in Eden and until that glorious day when the reign of God is perfectly established in every human heart, the state is called to act as one of the hands by which God exercises his redemptive sovereignty over creation. The legitimate role of government of human government is to restrain the progress or expansion of evil and chaos, it is to enforce laws which protect liberty, it is to uphold principles of justice and due process, it is to prevent exploitation of the weak by the strong, and it is to provide for the common good. And we find Great teaching about this in both Romans chapter 13 and prior to that in so many of the teachings of the prophets of the Old Testament. And when these things are done responsibly by government, both God and humanity get well served. It was for this reason that the Apostle Paul urged his young colleague Timothy, and I quote, to pray for kings and all those in authority. One of the great ministries Christians have to have in this world today is to constantly and regularly be in prayer for our political leaders, for our governments, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. As Paul concludes his comment. So, what does this mean? Well, as I said, it means we will be praying faithfully for those in political authority. It also suggests, I think, that Christians ought to be the last in our society to mock and deride public officials. I know that's hard to do. (laughs) That is hard, right? I mean, sometimes what leaders do seems so worthy of that kind of criticism, but much as we're called to love our enemies and pray even for those who persecute us, the way of Christ suggests that we are to walk in a different pathway than may be popular and common in our time. We ought to be the first to show a profound respect and a prayerful concern for all of those who serve in government. Let me underline also an important balancing perspective. Christian ethics are, are, are almost always Ethics held in creative tensions. and and Which is why so few people want to live by Christian ethics. They would rather choose this way or that way when Jesus is full of grace and truth, freedom and discipline. Uh, And so the balancing perspective I want to offer is that Christians, as much as we regard um, government as a gift, are never to regard the state as the principal agent of redemption in a society. Let me say that again a little differently. We're never to regard government as the primary force for renewal and good in the society. Restrain evil? Yes. Renew spiritual life at the core of every healthy society Is a cult, at the heart of a culture, is a cult a system of belief? Whose responsibility is it to cultivate that? Not primarily governments. As personally committed as most of the founding fathers of this nation were to Jesus Christ, as deeply convinced as they clearly were that a people without loyalty to God were like a, a, a village cut off from the spring that supplies the clean water they need in life, it is also very telling that the founders did not write into the Constitution or the other founding documents of this nation when they could have a mandate that the government be the primary agent for teaching the Bible or leading the people in prayer. While they would roll over in their graves, I think, to see how contemporary society has tried to root religious values out of public conversation, personal experience with the state churches of Europe had made the nation's founders deeply and rightly suspicious of any government that dared to assume the role of pastor to its people. Martin Luther, how many of you have heard that name before? Martin Luther was not a naive man on matters of power and of piety and of politics, but he once said, and I quote, it is out of the question that there should be a Christian government even over one land. Martin Luther would challenge Christian nationalism. He would say that this is a myth. This is not a healthy pursuit for Christians. We should not expect that a government would be so Christianized, expect a government to be so Christianized that it would replace the role that God has given to the church. He said, The reason is because the wicked always outnumber the good, and so it will be until Jesus comes again. In his brilliant book, Kingdoms in Conflict, Chuck Colson offers a similar warning against the kind of utopian visions that sometimes we get seduced into thinking will come as a result of the fusion of our faith and politics. Every time a government has stepped outside of its God-ordained role and tried to play the role of being the spiritual leader of a society, Coulson maintains, it has resulted in either an extremely watered-down civil religion that is devoid of the power to truly transform or it becomes a despotic regime that manipulates religion for its own purposes." Colson goes on to remind us that the doctrine of the separation of church and state arose not to protect the state from the church, but rather to protect the church from the state. For again and again, history demonstrates that when the cause of the cross and the cause of the crown get confused under one institution, Christ's cause and the world alike suffer. I would go on to say that the entanglement in our day of mainline churches with the Democrat Party and of evangelical churches with the Republican Party have not been good for the witness of either of these vital branches of the Christian movement. Neither political party embraces the full range of concerns that matters to Jesus. Both parties have certain representatives who are wildly out of step with the ethics of Christ's kingdom in critical areas. And so when Christians excessively fuse their identity and their hope with the agenda or the personalities of any political party, it compromises our witness as servants of a kingdom above all earthly empires. It's telling, I think, that Jesus himself refused such a confusion when it was offered to him. Think about this. One of the first temptations he ever faced in the wilderness from Satan was to seize earthly kind of power. The crowd on Palm Sunday wanted to make him king. Even Peter, at the Last Supper, strove to encourage and challenge Jesus to adopt political power as a primary means for fostering a love for God or an obedience to God's commandments. And Judas betrayed him, turned against him, Because Jesus wouldn't choose that course. If we're waiting for a spiritual renewal of our government to lead us out of the moral challenges of our day, then we're putting our hope in the wrong place. For just as Jesus did not allow the sword to Peter, he didn't give the keys to the kingdom to Caesar, he gave them to the church. And if we're to follow Jesus' commandments, the instruction he gives us in our lesson for today, then we must not only give Caesar respect and authority in political matters, we must also render to God what is clearly God's. So what does that really mean? What does it mean? to really render under God what is God's. I wanna try and close today by suggesting a few practical ways we can do that. For one thing, I believe it's our responsibility to hold government accountable to its God-ordained role. When government falls short of its calling by failing to restrain evil or preserve order or protect the defenseless, or promote justice. When government is not doing these things, which are fundamental to what the scriptures suggest human government is meant to be about, then God-honoring citizens are called to remind elected officials by vote and by voice that they're neglecting their duty and that we must have people who take that duty seriously. When a political body oversteps its God-given role, when it claims power to dictate religious values or persistently violates the higher law of God, then Christians have a responsibility to challenge it prophetically and strenuously. We are to be salt and light. When a political leader or party is in concert with Christian principles in some areas, but clearly contrary to the values of Jesus in other areas, we need to be able to distinguish that. And we need to to not give unqualified support, but we need to call out those places where that individual is acting contrary to God's way and not get used as a tool of political powers of the left or the right because we are meant to be, again, salt and light, and we must not lose our saltiness. We must not lose the luminous quality that we have and have it confused with the powers of this age. Additionally, Christians render to God and honor to God, and they improve the work of Caesar when they work for transformation in public life. Some of the greatest redemptive gains for human societies have been achieved by little platoons of Christians. And if you want to read a wonderful treatise on this subject, I recommend Colson's book, uh, The Body, and describes the role the church has in the world. Uh, But by little platoons of Christians, we mean people who have dedicated themselves to to working in the public square creatively. They have chosen to run for political office. They have uh, enacted um, measures to lobby legislators in accordance with what they sense is uh, God-honoring policy. They are people who take on tasks that government is not well-equipped to undertake or is not doing very well and thus the abolition of slavery, and the gaining of civil rights, the ministry to inmates that has brought about such a dramatic decline of recidivism in many prisons, the establishment of Habitat for Humanity, the largest enterprise in the world that provides housing for the poor, the repelling of the pornographic and drug trades in many neighborhoods, and the resulting decline of violence as a result the battle against human trafficking, these are all just a few of the life-changing movements God has enabled through faithful platoons of Christian action groups and statesmen. And it is one of the great joys of this congregation's life that we invest more than a million dollars every single year together to fund exactly this kind of activism in our world today through our mission partners. So let me summarize and and then move us towards a close. It's the responsibility of people of Christian faith, I think, to view government as a gift, but to never regard it as the primary vessel for the redemption of society. It's our calling to hold government to its God-ordained role but it is also our responsibility to play our God ordained role by being transforming agents, salt in life through active involvement in the public square. But if you're looking for one final way to give God his due in the public arena, then let us together resolve, as we move forward in this world, to be a gracious witness about the hope we see in Jesus Christ. Historian Will Durant once wrote, the greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism. It is not Europe versus America. It is not even the East versus the West, and I might translate these terms for our day and say it's not really capitalism versus socialism, it's not China versus America. These are important questions for sure. We could talk for hours about those on another day. But the most important question of our time is whether people can live without God. Will they choose to live a life without God? I believe the world, our society, needs to hear you and me say that there is at least one more thoughtful man or woman who believes we cannot and we need not live without God as our supreme authority. Your loved ones and your neighbors and mine need to hear that we believe that the deepest solution to the struggles of our age and that of our country are not finally political but spiritual ones. Christians must resist being cowed by the claim that the pluralistic nature of the American populace now requires that discussion of absolute and religious values be canceled on the grounds that they're offensive to some people. That is censorship, not pluralism. Pluralism in the historical sense has always implied a free marketplace of ideas, a robust dialogue and debate about the ideas that lead to life and flourishing. I want to be clear that it never serves the cause of Christ well for any of us to use the public square as a forum for angry rants or at a distance Bible banging. Rudeness must never be confused with righteousness. But to suggest that we can discuss today or even understand crucial topics like justice and equality and peace and human thriving without ever mentioning the absolute ground from which these values spring is such a departure from reality that with gentleness and respect, we must perseveringly resist it. As columnist Michael Novak observed in Forbes magazine some time ago, we hear politicians sometimes calling for a politics of meaning. But politics, writes Novak, is about who gets what, where, and how. It is about important but not ultimate things. If you seek a spiritual community, if you're seeking a link to a higher purpose, a renewal of the honest questioning and courage that is at the heart, at the base of an ethic worthy of the human person, you don't simply join a political party, you join a church. President James Madison once said much the same thing in other words, and I quote him. We have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments of God. You see, every time someone truly receives the gift of forgiveness which pours from the cross, Every time somebody invites Jesus to come in and be the crowning Lord of all of his or her thoughts and deeds, an amazing thing happens. He or she begins to exercise a liberty that does not have to be constantly monitored. It does not have to be coercively enforced by the government of Caesar because it is constantly being inspired by the reign of God. Can you imagine the political and social impact if every one of us gathered here today or within the sound of my voice and in churches all across this great land helped even one more person to come to know the king who laid down his crown in order to take up a cross? And then if that one person went out and did the same and then another and another, if all of us didn't just talk about Jesus but renewed our passionate, humble commitment to living like Jesus, to treating even our enemies like Jesus treated his, talk about an American revolution. Talk about a nation truly under God not just using God language for its own purposes. I believe it would lead to the most beautiful era in the history of this country. It would make so many more of us ready to meet the one true sovereign before whom even this world's Caesars will all humbly kneel and one day say, my Lord, And my God, what can I render to thee? Please pray with me. O sovereign God, we come on bended knee before you today, conscious there will come a day when the kingdom's and empires of this earth will melt away before the brilliance of your reign. Caught in the time between that day's full arrival and its first announcement to shepherds on a hillside, we but ask for your grace to live faithfully in this hour. Grant us wisdom not to put our final faith in any governance save your own, Yet grant us courage to do now what we can to hold our earthly government accountable to your calling. Lead us to roles of service ourselves in the public square that we might aid the state in restraining evil, preserving order, promoting justice. Then above all else, Lord, propel us from our closets to share with even one other soul, the hope we have in him who once wore a cross for our sake that we might one day wear a crown. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray and all God's people said, amen.